My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Brian Penny. On October 8, 2013, Brian Penny experienced his first day clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction. Instead of perceiving his addiction as a failure, however, he embraced a second chance at life and went to university to study the intricacies of human behavior. Since then, he's become a consultant to some of Ireland's largest corporations, a final PhD student, a lecturer in Trinity College and University College Dublin, a life change strategist, a radio presenter and author of a recently published memoir, Bonus Time. Brian Penny, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thanks for having me, William. I'm really excited for this podcast and thanks for the, the lovely introduction. Yeah, you're very welcome for that. And our topic today is change is possible. And I was fascinated when my twin brother, Ed, uh, you know, sent me a message on WhatsApp to say, listen, you have to have this guy on the, the podcast. So I researched you. And again, in terms of that, Brian, your, your message is wonderful. You know, the intent to help people is there. And I'm really curious then in terms of Maybe tell me a little about your 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 life journey there. You know, you talked about change as possible. You were in a, a pretty difficult position when you talked about your chronic heroin addiction and 15 years at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy, uh, William. And, and you know what the biggest thing is? And I always try to make it more relatable to people. But for me, the biggest change in my life was not addict to non-addict. It was not even doing a PhD or anything like that. It was destroyed by anxiety and compulsive thinking to having a wonderful relationship with anxiety and and my mind it's completely changed in that relationship and it all came like really anxiety and and being consumed by my mind was the source was the source of my suffering so it was grounded in childhood trauma i had a lot of trauma i had a really traumatic experience with an operation as an infant as well so i literally cried for the first year of my life And I had surgery without a general anesthetic, which is a crazy thing. But before 1985, the medical practice didn't believe that infants experience pain like normal human beings, normal adults. So that was it. That was a strange thing. I only realized when I was writing my memoir. So since I've done a degree in psychology and I've done my PhD and I know a lot about the human mind and stuff, I basically, I have learned that like, I didn't remember the trauma as an infant, but I was conditioned. Like the body keeps the score. It's it's a great Mm. book out there. The body kept that pain. And for a lot of people that are struggling with anxiety, it's not the person in the moment that's struggling. It's your past conditioning 
that primes you to feel anxious in the moment. So yeah. I believe I was really primed from that early age. And then there was a lot of alcoholism in my family as well. I was a compulsive yeah. warrior thinking my family were going to die, my dad drink driving. And it really just set the tone for me for a life of anxiety. And when I found drugs at 14 years of age, I loved drugs because they took me away from my pain. And when yeah. I found heroin at the age of 17, it was like, as I described in my book, it was like a warm, soft blanket just wrapped around my soul. It took yeah. me to heaven that night, but it quickly took me to hell. And I spent the next 18 years in addiction, 15 years chronically addicted to heroin. Wow. Wow. And I'm sure there was, there was that's some journey that you've gone through. I'm sure there's a lot of moments where, you know, feeling in hell felt like an eternity for you. Yeah. Yeah, did you know what? Like Groundhog Day. Did you ever see the film Groundhog Day? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, with yeah. Bill Murray. He just keeps on waking up the same day. And for me, like, I, 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 it's really important to get it across. I was a functional addict. Like, even though, like, my my uh, mantra, I suppose, me, me line is change as possible because I look so different from how I was in addiction to how I look now. I even have scans in my brain that have changed from then to now. But the big piece for me was just that, was that internal, was that just that internal change really, you know? So, yeah. but for the Groundhog Day part for me, all, all I, the one thing I really, really remember was just relent, waking up, not even waking up. I never really slept, to be quite honest. It was years yeah. where I didn't go to sleep. But when I reached my tortoise and the, the latter end of my addiction, I used to I used to go to work. So I'd wake up in the morning I, after a two or three hour sleep, if I even got any sleep, I'd wake up and go to work. I'd take a lot of tablets just to get me through the day. I'd smoke yeah. some heroin just to get me through the day, just to take the edge off the anxiety so I could still do my job. Yeah. Work would end. I'd be crippled all day with anxiety. Work would finally end <clears throat> and I would... Um, I would uh, stop in on the way home. If I didn't already have a few bags of heroin, I'd get some money from somewhere. I'd go home, get a bottle of vodka, take a couple of Valium or whatever tablets I could get and just bring myself into oblivion for the next few hours. Then I would wake up that night, usually about two, three in the morning, drag myself off up to bed. And it was those few hours of just lying in bed, just felt like an eternity, just trying to put myself asleep, like the agitation in my body, the mind just racing. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't escape myself. And that, that's yeah. the part that really felt like an, an eternal suffering. I, that's the big part that really resonates throughout my addiction. Uh, yeah, and if people go to their your websites, they can see your kind of before and after pictures, you know. Yeah. And I'm quite curious then, because the listeners might be curious about this as well. So you were doing a job. You were saying you were being yeah. functional. How long were you functional? This is the big question, because um, how functional was I? I remember doing a talk, a public talk in the DRIAC, the public talk in the DRIAC one day. So it was a big enough talk, so there were 200 people in, in, the, in the crowd. And I'd sort of been spouting off this, like you tell yourself these stories and you're doing these talks and you just say, I was a functional addict. But I remember saying that and was there six or seven people at that talk for me former job. And I just had this moment of insight and I started laughing. And I says, well, I wasn't really functional. And I'm only realizing that now because the people from the job are sitting there right now smiling at me. So I would say I was fairly functional in my 20s. As I got to the last five years of my addiction, I got clean in, in at 35. So the last five years of addiction, there was a sharp increase and I stopped functioning. But the one thing about it, I was very, very good at my job when I was awake and that's a crazy like a prerequisite for work is to be asleep is to be awake not asleep yeah. and I used to be goofing off in the chair but I had such good friends in the job now they were enabling me at the time they didn't know that we were yeah. working together years 
but I was really good at my job. I was one of the best at my job when I was awake and there was details that I knew that other people couldn't, technical details that they had to yeah. ask me about. So it was, it was like the perfect storm for me to keep my job. But for the final two years, like I really went off the rails and I was only when a new company, we merged with a new company, they, the other new people came in and says, what the hell is up with him? How is he working here? Get rid of him. Yeah. And it was, yeah. I soon, they soon got rid of me on the basis that they just had to get rid of me. Like, you know, it was just, it was, it was hopeless. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and you know, it, it, then you were talking about your relationship with anxiety. Then you talked about trauma, and you know, it's it identify with that. I I suffered from post traumatic post traumatic stress myself right. when a friend of mine passed away, and I know how the body holds on to that energy. So yeah. where does where does the where does that relationship change then for you? So what what was that turning point where you kind of went? Okay, I'm able to sleep now. Like, does does the body, does the trauma stay in your body, or do you just get used to it? You know, is your anxiety still there? I, I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So for me, it changed a relationship with it. So as you brought that up there, right at that moment, I actually noticed myself just rubbing the scar in my belly. So that's toward 40, 42 years ago, and I still rub that scar. I have like a knee just to sort of rub it a little yeah. bit and get the energy away. So there's still mm. something there, but it's still a little bit of work to do on that. But for me, I was always afraid of me harpy and my pulse, like as a heroin addict, if you told me you'd give me a million quids worth of heroin, if I could feel me harpy for a minute, I couldn't do it. It was impossible. The phobia of that was just crazy. And that sort of drove the anxiety. And anxiety for me was like bodily agitation. I was always agitated and, mm -hmm. and just sort of the shake and a tightness in my chest. Now, when I got clean, I had this shift in perspective and it was like my mind went quiet. I didn't realize that at the time. It was only retrospectively. I remember having this, it, it was over a period of time, a couple of weeks, a lot of suffering, detox, seizures, hospital. But when I actually got clean, I had this experience in the detox on a farm where it was just like the world was just glowing. It was really, yeah. the world was glowing. It was like nature was breathing on me in this misty morning. And it was just this profound experience. And what I've come to realize was that through the suffering I went through, it was like my mind went quiet. Now, lots of the research I've done and the reading I've done, and it's part of my PhD, is exploring the relationship between language and emotion. And when I'm talking about language, I'm talking about self-talk, the stories yeah. we tell ourselves and what we think and what we say to ourselves. And there's a huge relationship, like language is a vehicle for emotion. We have up to 60,000 thoughts a day. And for many people, they're predominantly verbal or they're predominantly negative. My story yeah. was I cannot cope. Anxiety is killing me. Drugs are killing me. There's no way out. I'm a prisoner. That was my internal narrative. So no wonder I was anxious. I was afraid of my life. I was afraid of the world. But when my mind went quiet, it gave me this freedom. And I've been exploring this since, and it's like anxiety dissipated from that moment, but I've been working on it ever since, really changing my relationship with anxiety. I still work on it today. Self-observation is the biggest technique for me. So I observe my bodily sensations, my feelings and my thoughts. I am not my thoughts. And a great way to describe this is like when Brian, the addict, looked in the mirror 10, 15 years ago. I yeah. thought like an addict. I felt like an addict. I had bodily sensations of anxiety and I looked like an addict. The mm. same Brian looks in the mirror now. I don't think like an addict. I don't feel like an addict. And I don't look like an addict or think like an addict. Mm. So who's looking in the mirror? It's like the I and the self. 
So yeah. it's like we always think we are the self, but that was like a false self, a conceptual sense of self. Brian, the addict who can't cope with anxiety. Yeah. But there's always the observer who observes the self. So a big practice of mine will be self-observation, where I observe my thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations. So I watch them come and I watch them go, and I've created a sense of detachment from them. And it's just been the most powerful practice in my life to help me to change my relationship with anxiety. Like if I'm doing a radio show or a TV show or something like that, I'll feel the anxiety, the tightness in the chest, but I'll say, there you are. I'm going to watch it come and I'm going to watch it go. Now it takes practice. It takes consistency to, yeah. to get the benefits of this, but that's been fundamentally the game changer for me. And I think it, as well is, is that it's a bit like that cognitive behavior therapy piece that can get stuck in that downward spiral because if you yeah. feel that emotion then emerging and it is anxiety then then you start doing that self-talk where it it reinforces that yeah. negative narrative down and then you're worried about what if you're worried about what if people see me nervous or whatever and then yeah. you know and it's down and down and down isn't it yeah, it's like, I, I, there's a great saying in, a, it's a great, I love CBT, but I love uh, acceptance and commitment therapy as well. And there's a great metaphor in acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's like, uh, like if you fight anxiety, anxiety will win. It's like a snake trying to eat its own tail, like anxiety will yeah. win. But there's this uh, metaphor in acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's like the anxiety monster in a tug of war with the anxiety monster. He's pulling one end of the rope, you're pulling the other end of the rope, and there's a big pit in the middle, and he's pulling you. Anxiety is always stronger if you try to fight it. It will always win. So what do you yeah. do? You drop the rope. Now, anxiety's still there. The, to the monster's still on the other side. It doesn't go away. But your hands are free, and it gives you an opportunity to do something else. So you need to stop the fight. And it's only by paradoxically stop fighting anxiety that you can give yourself a chance. That's that's the key. And can you tell me more about that um, acceptance and commitment, especially when it comes to that, to that impulsivity then and that novel seeking as part of your research then? Where do, where do those two things interlap? Yeah, so they don't really, to be quite honest. So um, they, they do and they do and they don't. I suppose everything in, interlaps at the end of the day. So acceptance and commitment therapy is just one of the therapies that I've studied, but as mm. well as um, cognitive behavioral therapy, humanistic psychology. I've sort of looked at a lot of the different therapies on my own time, mostly. Like my me, me psychology degree was just a psychology degree. Uh, my PhD research is specifically, it's a research-based uh, yeah. research based uh, PhD, looking at mindfulness, impulsivity, addiction, motives and different elements of things looking at that but and another thing I, I, you might be interested in talking about as well is this idea of wanting more and we mm. always want more the addict wants more drink wants more drugs the person who's struggling in covid wants and they want to escape their feelings they might be eating emotionally eating jumping on the smartphone over yeah. exercising gambling all these different things and if it feels good we want more yeah. So my exploration, I'm doing my PhD in the Institute of Neuroscience. It's it's semi-neuroscience kind of research as well, but I'm sorry, to, I've, I've, it's really my own project. But the big thing, this novelty seeking, this risk-taking, these facets of impulsivity, yeah. and impulsivity is a multi-dimensional construct. Like we think of impulsivity as one thing, but we can have like motor impulsivity. It's like, it's called response inhibition. Like, so you go to take the cookie, you're halfway there. Can you stop that ongoing response and say, no, I yeah. better not. So that's like motor impulsivity. Then we can have choice impulsivity. It's like a delay discount. It's like instant gratification. Will I have, um, will, will I, will I have um, the, the field now or a nice biscuit now? 
or will I wait and go for a jog and, and get the benefits in that? So are you going to be impulsive? And that's sort of the le- choice impulsivity, it's called. But then there's this kind of trait impulsivity, which I find very interesting. It's that my, lots of my research is exploring this and it's around negative urgency, it's called, and positive urgency. And listeners might be able to relate to this. Like sometimes you might feel, oh, um, I feel I feel really crap. I can't really cope with life. I'm feeling stressed. I'm going to have a drink. So it's this negative, negative emotions cause you to be impulsive. But then it might be, it's Friday, it's sunny, let's go have a drink. So positive emotions cause you to be impulsive. So there's all of these elements of impulsivity where, it, and it's a quick fix. That's why impulsivity and addiction is so linked. It's that quick fix, give it to me now so I feel yeah. better. But what I found is, and the research has shown, that it's this a level of awareness. When you are more self-aware and you're more mindful in the present moment, that that mediates the relationship between, it's okay to be impulsive, but it's yeah. the lack of awareness around that that leads to addictive tendencies. I'm still impulsive. You probably, people can even hear it in this talk. I'm enthusiastic, I'm passionate, I'm impulsive. I'm in, innately impulsive and I jump into things, but it's the awareness around that to stop you doing the wrong things. And a lot of my research has sort of shown the results of the research, which I'm only collecting final data analysis yesterday which was a bit of a milestone for me that's shown that 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 relationship that that's the key piece but there's another piece in that as well it's this idea of wanting more and this seems to be a really a really interesting variable for people in addiction because it's like whatever makes you feel good you want more and for people in addiction when they get out of addiction they still want more i didn't play golf two times a week when i got clean i loved it so i played golf 12 times a week i didn't just get into academia and read a book i wanted to do a phd it's that addiction and i I don't think there's an addictive personality i think it's a set of habits and a set of actions over time that's reinforcing you could call that an addictive personality but awareness is the key there's a great line in 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 addiction is a guy called johan harry and i actually have my radio show soon it's like i'm so excited for it but his line is sobriety is not the opposite of addiction connection is but i would actually go one step further and i would say awareness is the opposite of addiction and connection then is part of that awareness they, they, they combine so awareness is is the holy grail i think of uh of, of everything at the end of the day yeah i think that's fascinating and congratulations on that milestone it must be Cheers. feel Thanks great yeah, yeah you're yeah, very definitely. welcome and i'm just curious about that impulsivity then so if people are at home then and they might be impulsive shopping you know, yeah. be, you know, it's a click now or the gambling yeah. or, or, or food or, or whatever. What, what are the, the strategies then that they can put in place, you know, to change their life strategy? Yeah. And there's a couple of things there. The, the first thing I would say is, and I always, it's always very simple. The most simplest thing in the world is change your environment. Like, so if there's any triggers around, try to change the triggers. And that's really only a quick fix because there's other, there's deeper, deeper problems going on. So if you want to gamble, if you want to shop, you're obviously struggling with something. So the, the best thing to do is remove the stressors, but we can't just remove COVID right now. We can't remove lockdown right now. So maybe little quick fixes at the moment will be put your phone in a different room. There's a freedom app, an app called Freedom at the moment. So it's like you get this free app and you basically put in lock my phone for three hours. So people will be locked out of their phone for three hours. But if there's alcohol and if it's junk food eating and emotional eating, don't buy the junk food. Don't have the alcohol in the house. Change your environment and make it difficult to to access them things. But so that's like a simple, a simple little uh, a little uh, fix. 
There's another great little technique and it comes from mindfulness-based relapse prevention. It's it's if I'm acceptance of commitment therapy as well. A lot of the a lot of the therapies kind of use it, but it's it's about surfing your urge. That's the name of it, surfing the urge. And a craving is 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 a strange sort of energy in the body. Like you might be craving water, drugs, whatever, hungry, mm. just craving to be angry, like that, that urge to get angry, it can be anything. And um, it's a strange uh, sensation in the body, but cravings they find only last for 90, 60 to 90 seconds. So when you feel that craving to jump on the phone, to gamble, to eat that cake or whatever it is for you, whatever your poison is, or your perceived poison mm. is, think of it like that, like a wave coming into the shore. And that's an urge. But instead of like crashing with the wave straight away, you, you surf, you're surfing that urge and you surf it into shore. And then when you get into the shore, that craving's gone. And maybe just go and have a drink of water. Sometimes you might think you're 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 hungry or you're you're you're, you're you want to drink, but you might be just thirsty because cravings are hard to decipher. So that's a really good little mini technique to get rid of them cravings. But the third one, the big one, the big one is is really looking at what the stressors are because addiction in some form is is usually an avoidance of something. An avoidance mm. of past trauma that's causing you pain, an avoidance of current problems, stress, overwhelm. So you might be just trying to um, escape the moment because you're not feeling good. You're trying to feel better by using a drug or a drink or food or whatever that is. So really have a look at what's causing the problems and try to remove them stressors out of your life or try to cope better with them stressors. There's loads of techniques for that around mindfulness, gratitude, lots of different practices. The basics are so important. Exercise, food, sleep. Lots of tactics around that, but just uh, to be aware, back to self-awareness, to be aware of the stressors is really, really crucial. And I think that's really important is understanding what are, what is it that's driving your behavior. So, you know, I might share for our listeners, when I was 27, I started getting panic panic attacks. Mm. And um, I know it was, it was this sounds a bit um, out there, but I ended up doing um, hypnotherapy. And the reason I did hypnotherapy because there was so much that happened. I, w- I knew it had an effect on me, but I didn't realize which part was the most damaging piece. And, and when I was talked about before that post-traumatic stress is when I did the hypnotherapy, it brought me back to actually that moment right. where I was, I was holding all that stress. And it was basically my, my body was saying, listen, you've 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 suppressed it for so long there's only so much you can do you know and i was lucky that i didn't take go down the addiction route uh which could have easily happened uh yeah. you know and i think i was i was proactive but i think i was so proactive because i was so anxious i was like i can't leave the house what am i gonna do yeah. um you know and uh being a social um butterfly like myself i i think i think you know, that was something that I really needed to do. And I think, you know, for me, because there is so much anxiety and because I know it can be so debilitating, this is why I was so interested in doing this podcast with you. And, you know, again, in terms of that, you know, your own journey then, you know, and, and relationship with anxiety then, you know, is it that you're doing all those things right now to do that? Have you good days? Have you bad days? Do you find... For example, sleep is number one and then exercise. Where should people focus if they're right now? Yeah, and this simple question, thanks for sharing that as well, William. A panic attack is a, is a scary thing, isn't it? I had me forced mm. on that 20. It was a game changer for me in terms of fear. Yeah. <laughs> I began to fear the world in a whole new way. Yeah, um, yeah. But what I would say to that question, I love, I love, that, I love that question because 
it's a lot of the work for me it's the capital and the reserve that you put in beforehand and I think like for, for me like I, I, I put a big priority on my morning routine and my morning routine it's a 10 minute routine but it's a I call it the Mavic technique it simply stands yeah. for that helps me just remember it's simply called meditation affirmations visualization inner child work and gratitude I do five minutes of meditation and a minute of the tree in the middle and two minutes of gratitude and that yeah. really just primes me for the day sets me off when you win the morning you win the day I think and it really sets me off on the right foot for the day ahead I think that's really crucial yeah. exercise is a key piece as well and I eat pretty healthy as well like I think sugars control you all over the place so I think eating healthy not from a weight perspective or not from a looking good perspective just about feeling good perspective that's really really critical but what I would say is I heard a great metaphor a while ago like and I, I don't really have bad days and I'm, I'm delighted that I can say that but it, yeah. it, 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 it stops me being relatable to people because people say hey you have to have a bad day and I said look I really don't and yeah. the reason for that I do believe I do have worse days but they're not bad days yeah. And let's say you're the average person that doesn't do much self-care or whatever is flying at 10,000 feet. So when yeah. they have a low day, they come down to 5,000 feet and it's a dip at 5,000 feet. They feel crap. But if you have a morning routine, if you exercise, if you focus on the basics, if you start to stay positive and you use techniques to, to enhance your personal well-being, well, you're not flying at 10,000 feet. You're flying at 15,000 feet. And when you have a mm. bad day, you come down to 10,000 feet. So you have that yeah. reserve in place. So yeah, it's a worse day, but it's not a bad day. And you have the techniques to help you cope. And again, awareness is the catalyst for change. Like awareness is the key. Because without the awareness to use your techniques in that moment, then you're in trouble. Now, I've gotten into a very serious relationship in the last year. I fell in love for the first time myself in the, in the last year. And I've had... Congratulations. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, William. I didn't know what love was. Addiction hid me away from me feelings. <laughs> I fell in love with an amazing girl. She's incredible. But wow, can she bring me down in, in an instant, like in, 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 like with the rails? And it's because I care so much and it's been a roller coaster for me. Yeah. But what I found is like, and not bring me down, that's a terrible thing to say. She, she's just an amazing human being, but it's just the relationship struggles. Like it's very easy if you're a single dude going along and you're not worrying about much. You haven't got kids to worry about. You're focusing on your morning routine and this, that and the other. That's that's yeah. It's not the hardest thing in the world to do. But when there's kids, when there's relationships involved, it gets harder. But what I found is and why awareness is so important. Like let's say we'll be having a row, but I catch myself getting triggered. There, there's a great line by uh, Victor Frankl from his book, The Man's Search for Meaning. And it's between yeah. stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your chance to choose your response and there lies your growth and your freedom. I think most people don't have a space. There's a stimulus and there's a response and the response is anger, guilt, fear, anxiety. If you put the work in, you increase that space and you catch yourself in full flight. For, for me personally, on the 29th of March last year, my book launch, when my book was being launched, I was supposed to be on the Ryan Tuberty show. Not only was the Royal Tubbly Show cancelled because of COVID, the bookshops closed. The books yeah. got trapped in the warehouse. They couldn't even be sold online. My whole book launch was cancelled. And I felt it in the body. I was like, oh, that feels crap. But there was a space between stimulus and response. And I said, yeah. right, that's outside of my control. What can I control here? And I mm. focused on what was within my control, my response to the situation. I could have wallowed in self-pity. That was a choice. But it says, no, I'm going to do talks and skills and companies. And, and I ended up designing online courses. And it's bringing me on an, an amazing career trajectory that I wasn't expecting because I focused on my response to the situation. So I think that's the goal. You will have the low points, but they won't be as low. 
And that's where you're practicing gratitude there. So yeah. we have some international listeners and we may be talking a bit fast. So if I might oh, ask slower. Brian again, it's just a Mavic. So that's, um, yeah. So if you just repeat that maybe a bit slower. Yeah. So, so I just, I just noticed, cause obviously I'm from Galway. So we speak quickly as well. As so, well. Yeah. 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 So, so it's meditation, yeah. affirmations, visualization, yes. inner yeah. child work and gratitude. Good man. All right. Okay. <laughs> so I had that written down on my notes. And and for me, you know, you were talking about self-talk and language then. So how might you talked about that observation then? How might we, you know, how might we recognize the words that we use in terms of that self-narrative? This is it like that minimization that we do to say, listen, you know, I'm the the biggest idiot ever for, you know making that uh, purchase on the internet or what 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 might those sound like yeah and that's like the inner critic like you're stupid you're not good enough what did you do yeah. that for for me my internal my primary internal narrative in addiction was i cannot cope my primary narrative today yeah. is very different it's fuel doesn't stop me our, our yeah. adversity doesn't stop me it fuels my ability to thrive so i've changed my story and i find myself now leaning into challenges instead of sort of stepping away from them but to answer your question specifically the key part is there's loads of little tools for that to, to, like you need to self-observation is key you need to observe that narrative what are what are the stories you're telling yourself are you telling yourself you're not good enough but another part is what's the tone of that voice ah you're stupid ah you're bloody stupid like some people are so judgmental they berate themselves they wouldn't talk to anyone else like that but they talk to themselves in this language that's really really horrific like when you think about it and it can be self-doubt it can be the victim mentality like if something happens what do you say why me why does this always happen to me like if you were to flip that and reframe that and say what can i do about this whereas why me is real reactive Whereas what can I do about this is like action orientated. It's responsive. So it's really look at the tone of the language. Look at the words you're using. Are you saying, why me? Are you saying you're telling yourself you're stupid? And even simple things like I can't, I must. COVID-19 made me feel that way. Nobody makes you feel anyway, because if that was the case, everyone would be feeling the same way. So if someone's saying COVID-19 or he or she made me feel that way, well, if, if that's not making everyone feel the same way, well, you're, you're play, you, have a, you have a role to play there. So it's to be aware of the language that you're using. And again, it's back to this awareness. It's becoming aware of yourself and waking up to that language, that internal narrative. And once you wake up to that, I think I said it already, awareness is the catalyst for change. There's all of these techniques of reframe and I've reframed myself talk over time. But as soon as I became aware, I couldn't help but change. That's that's the that's the the big one. And yeah, and for me, I, I got a lovely insight from my mother-in-law. And you know, when you using words like like I must, you know, isn't there a huge difference in using the word like may? It's so empowerful, it's empowering. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you're like, I ha- I may do this. That means you have a choice. So if you have a choice, then you're gonna go on. Well, actually, I will take five more minutes in bed, you know, yeah. or I will yeah. take, you know, an extra five minutes with my cup of tea and just practice that mindfulness. Yeah. So, uh, Margaret, if you're listening, uh, thanks yeah. for that. Uh, I, I was and, on the, just on that as well, uh, William. Sorry, I was on with she on Sheila Shoiga's podcast as well, and she oh, says, yeah. oh, I, I don't know how to do that techie stuff." And I said something, "I don't know how to do that." And we were talking about self talk, and she says, "She just added yet." I don't know how exactly. to do that 
yet. Just that little word. And, and even the word just is a very, very dangerous word. Um, I just going to send you this email because I just wanted to talk to you about this thing. Like, you're diminishing your sense of self, but using that word just like you really are. So be very careful of the words you use. And again, you know that but. Yeah, but. Yeah, word. very dangerous as yeah. well because it deletes everything that you said yeah. beforehand. Yeah. You know, I don't mean to upset you, but. But. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you the most upsetting thing you've ever yeah. heard. Um, so, so, and again, you talked about reframing. And I think that's really important, especially when it comes to that self-narrative because you talked about, you know, that that victim narrative. And for me, um, I, I, in my early 20s, I used to have this narrative of poor me. Yeah. you know and and listen to my story and it was like bring out the little violin and I had a real habit of that kind of whining or that moaning and and peace yeah. and that was something that I had to reframe to I had to own my my pain I had to own my trauma you know figure out what was I responsible for in, yeah. in in that and for me I think the biggest learning then was when I was able to reframe this actually you know what well a lot of the pain that I endured was actually a a way for me as a gift to help other people and it's really about reframing it as a, as a gift I think I read it in a book somewhere I can't quote the book you know so I think that reframing piece is very important you know and that's where gratitude then comes in doesn't it yeah it's it's absolutely huge and even specific to your own story there as well William it's like there's a great technique another one from CBT as well cognitive behavioral therapy and it's the ABC technique yeah and it's like A is adversity B is belief C yeah. is the consequence. So let's say an adverse event, something negative happens. Let's say it's a puncture in the tire. You go out and someone else with a very can-do, let's say you in the past and someone else with a, with a very can-do attitude goes out. They have the same adversity. They both have punctured tires. Let's say you're both in a rush for a meeting. The belief for, for yourself, your older self is, why me? This always happens to me. What's the consequence of that? You're going to feel sorry for yourself. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel sad. The other person is, wow, this is interesting. This, this is, that's a shock. That This is a bit of bad luck. It doesn't usually happen to me, but I have a can-do attitude. What do you think, Derek, the consequences of their beliefs are going to be? They're going to fix the puncher. They're going to get in that car. They're going to make a phone call and say, check out what happened. It's very strange. We're here. This is the way it is. They accept the reality. So I think the important piece, if you have them negative beliefs that drive the consequences, because your beliefs drive the consequences of your act, of of your actions or your beliefs, the, the, the relationship between them is huge, is dispute those beliefs. So if you went down and say, why me? Why does this always happen to me? It says, well, it didn't. It's only the third time in my life I've actually had a puncher. It's just a bit of bad luck. And when you reframe that belief and you dispute those assumptions, those beliefs, all of a sudden the, the, the effect is new then. All of a sudden you don't feel depressed and sad because you're, you're looking at it more rationally. So I think reframing and disputing those existing beliefs is critical. And, you know, and that relationship you have with your beliefs then is kind of leads me then to your relationship with fear, because fear is obviously closely linked with yeah. um, anxiety. So, again, in terms of that, can you talk me through, you know, um, your fear? Because sometimes your fear is what holds you in in terms of uh, preventing you from change, you know. So, you know, could you discuss a little bit about your relationship then with fear? With fear, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I love leaning into fears. I've wrote a lot about fears. I think there was a line in my book, in my memoir, and a lot of people have uh, picked out, they tend to pick out this line. And it was, the greatest things in life are often on the other side of fear. 
That's where true connection lies in our suffering, our vulnerabilities, our struggles and our fears. So it's like you've got to embrace your fears. I think it's Susan Jeffers, feel the fear and do it anyway. Like if you're afraid yeah. of a bungee jump, go do it. You've got to lean into your fears. I'm, I'm quoting everyone now, but even Paolo Coelho's quote, if you yeah. if you give in to your fears, you won't be able to talk to your heart. Like if you're afraid of something, fear is okay. It's okay to be afraid, but ask yourself, why are you afraid? And and if you're afraid to do something and you don't do it, ask yourself, well, what's, what's, what, what, what can, what's the worst that can happen if I, if I step into my fears, but what's the worst that can happen if I don't? So for me, I was terrified of public speaking, absolutely terrified. And I was like, what's the worst that could happen if I, if I, if I give in to me, I get up on stage and I do a public talk, I might get anxious, I might get sweaty armpits, yeah, I might even have a panic attack, who knows, it's unlikely, but I might, it's not the worst thing in the world, but what's, 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 what will happen if I don't, and I always think of myself, like, it's public speaking, it's my greatest passion right now, and I absolutely love it, so I would have missing out on my greatest passion if I gave in to me fears on public speaking, and there's still other fears that I have in life that I haven't stepped through them boundaries yet, but I think our, what we fear is the gateway to what we really want in life, there's a reason why you fear that, and obviously there's visceral fears, like a dog barking at you, like losing your house, we're not talking about these kind of fears, we're talking about the fears of putting yourself out there into the world and taking a chance, embracing failure, and we're back to reframing as well, like what is failure, but a step on the ladder to success, like if you fear failure, you are throwing away any chance of success, because it's a step on the ladder to success, to, to, to succeed you have to fail, success follows failure so if you're afraid of that you're in trouble so i think you need to embrace your fears take a chance put yourself out there like amy huberman i reached out to loads of people for interviews loads of leading experts in lots of different fields and amy i wasn't going to ask amy huberman for an interview and she says if you don't ask the answer is always no so if you're yeah. afraid to ask for help, well, the answer is already no if you don't ask. So by asking, you're giving yourself a fighting chance. But we fear rejection so badly because it's ingrained in our evolution. So I think it's just step into your fears. And what you'll find is it's not as scary as you, as you really thought. That's, that's, the, that's been my experience. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's something like, you know, when you ask people there, how, how much, you know, do your fears actually become realized? And it's probably less than 1%. You know, yeah. and yeah. then the thing about failure, I love this one about fail. Fail is your first attempt in learning. I yeah. love that. I love that. You know, it's brilliant. So it's that, it's, it's, that, brilliant. it's that thing you you quoted from Carol Dweck, you know, not yet, that growth mindset. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it uh, as well. And that kind of brings me then is, is your connection then, and I'm just curious about this, should you embrace the anxiety you know, is there something that you're disconnecting with or something you should connect with? Should you connect with that trauma? Because that'd be, be quite difficult. So I'm, I'm just curious is, do you do that with just in a safe environment with a therapist? You know, what is it for people who, you know, we give them the kind of surface level stuff, but how do we take care of the deeper stuff? Go deep, yeah. It's a great, it's a great one. It's a really important question as well, especially because you don't want people going off that could be struggling with deep, deep traumas and they're in their room on their own, so they're touching off that that kind of deep stuff. What I would say is, if you've had deep trauma and you've know you and you know you've had deep trauma, I would say reach out to some kind of counselor, specialist, psychologist, and get them to talk about that first. Even have a session or two and just touch around the edges and feel it out. But I think you can also go into it as well, like your own trauma, and but but be gentle with it and for 
everything I talked about today, baby steps is key. Whether you're setting up a morning routine, whether you're going implementing an exercise routine, whatever you're doing, baby steps is key because if you jump ahead, full on into anything you're setting yourself up for failure because you won't be motivated to do that so baby steps that's really important and that's really important around um looking at your trauma and your past hurt as well so if you're doing mindfulness like i i can do a mindfulness exercise now and even now like with me heartbeat and the scars and stuff like that i'm comfortable with them now when i can go into them but some days i can only touch off them and say right i'm not going to hear you today you're a little bit agitated today it's like an entity in themselves so yeah. it's like, I nearly say focus on, and for me, it was like focus on my heart, feel the heartbeat. And then I would say, right, I'm just going to touch off you. I'm going to take a little tap, just tap off you a little bit and then pull away a little bit as well. So yeah. you can feel around the edges of these things, but don't immerse yourself in trauma on your own. Cause I think that's very, very dangerous. And at the end of the day, I think this is why inner child work is so important as well, because a lot of people think inner child work sort of like a fluffy concept, but what you are actually doing, if I get an, when I get anxious now in the present moment, I'm getting anxious based on my past experience as an infant, as my trauma, as a child, waiting for my mom and dad to come home from the pub. And they're the anxieties that are driving me and shaping me as a human being. So what I do with inner child work is I literally visualize that infant baby with the scar on his belly and I cradle him in my arms and say, I have you now, everything is okay. I do with other painful events in my childhood as well and anyone can do this. And it's just like therapy, what you're doing, because the way the memory works, we don't recall an event from the past and reprogram it back in and pull that event out again. Every time we recall a memory, it gets uh, it gets recoded back into the brain based on the, the on how you experienced it the new time. So if you recall problematic memories and troublesome memory memories in a safe environment, and you're telling yourself, "I'm strong now, I have you, everything will be okay." Well, the next time you recall that event, the emotional content of that won't be as strong. Like there's an area of the brain called the amygdala, it's the, the emotion center of our brain, mm. which is very closely connected to the hippocampus, which is the spatial memory center of our brain it's sort of the neuroscience is, is complex on that but that's um more or less how it works so like the it, the hippocampus nearly reach it really stores the, the the emotional content of our memories as well that's why they're so closely connected so when you change those memories you change the emotional baggage with it as well so over time i've started to reprogram myself so those memories and those traumatic experiences aren't as bad so you can do that but just be very careful. And I would say if there are any deep traumas, do speak to a professional and have them there with you as you do it. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on something there about that reassurance piece. I remember doing an exercise like that with a therapist before where my older self was talking to my younger self. Yeah. And it's such a powerful exercise. It's just reassurance. Yeah. You know, and just telling us, saying, listen, it's going to be okay. Yeah. I have your pal. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, So, so if people are, you know, talking about changing their life strategy then, right? And we talked about the the Mavic, you know, is there other kind of things that people should focus on in terms of life strategy then? So especially during you know, the times that we're living in now, you know, what are the other strategies that people should maybe embrace? Yeah, so so for myself, so what I've done since I got clean, I, I really developed what I call a program for life uh, for myself. And there's really three areas of this program. The foundations of that program are all around Eastern philosophy, self-awareness, meditation, the self, all of these kinds of ideas, self-observation. The next 
the third tier of that is the tools and tactics, the morning routines, the thinking tools, gratitude, all of these different things. Gratitude might fall into a little bit of the first foundational part as well, but all these tools and tactics. But there's another part in the middle, and it's really all about values and the decisions we make. And I really do think we need to be aware of our values because our values are our true north. And when I ask a lot of people, what, what, what are your values? They don't know what their values are. But if you don't know what your values are, how can you take actions and make decisions based on what you actually value in life? So for me personally, I, I, I have a couple of values like accountability. I do what I say. Boldness. I love taking risks. I love putting myself out there into the world inner peace, connection, compassion, open-mindedness, my mental health, uh, connection with my family. These are things that I value. So I should be making decisions based on things I value. So I think it's really important for people to ask them, why, why is it you value? And, and there's some great questions for that. Like if you, let's say if you're at your own funeral and you were, what would you want your friends to say about you? He yeah. was courageous. He was kind. They were loyal. They're the types of values people hold dear, those universal values. But there's sort of more personal values as well, playfulness, curiosity, adventure. So what do you value? And then are you making decisions based on that? So if boldness and adventure and playfulness are three of your core values, but you're sitting in a lab coding on a computer for the next two years and you're in an area where people aren't chatting or whatever like that, well, you're not living towards your values. You're not going to be happy. So I think it's really important to recognize your values and make values-based decisions. And, and it's really important about values-based decisions versus feelings-based decisions. Like, I don't feel like getting out of bed. I don't feel like eating healthy. Yeah, not many people do right now because life is hard right now. But you've got to be making decisions based on your values. I value accountability i value being industrious so i have to get out of bed i value my physical health so i'm gonna eat healthy and go for a run and not eat the crappy food so recognize your values and make actions and decisions towards them i think it's absolutely critical it was it was a monster in my life i, I had one big huge decision in my life that i made on that and it really it, it primed me to, to use that framework for everything because it was so important and I think it's good to evaluate what your your current values are and you know yeah. what your core values are. I think there's there's two different ways of looking at that because I remember, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of self-care. Yeah. And I was placing more value, excuse the use the at that word, you know, on ambition yeah. more so than self-care. And yeah. Actually, if I didn't practice self-care, the ambition would never be realized. Yeah. So yeah. for me, then it was just about reevaluating and say, actually, you know, what are my current values and what are the core values for me to be at my full potential? You know, and this is what the podcast is all about, is how do you take that different path to get to your potential? Just like you have you know, demonstrated, which is fantastic. I have to commend you on that, Brian. And I'm just conscious of time here. Um, there, I know you're going for a run after that. You're definitely I am. I am. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a meeting run, which is great. A meeting a guy from AIB, and we're welcome. We go for, go for have a meeting and a run together. It's brilliant. We both live beside the Phoenix Park, so it worked out well. Yeah, that that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So make sure if I if I'm going by, I'll give you a wave sometime. Sure. <laughs> um, come here. I'm I'm going to talk about here and to give you an opportunity then to, I suppose, provide some key takeaways then, and also you know for yourself, you you talked about your book, you talked about you know your online courses there. So I want to give you a kind of an opportunity there, so if people, you know, were interested in hearing more from you, Brian, you know that they could do so. So tell me a little bit. Um, 
more about the key takeaways from today's uh, podcast? I think the, the key takeaways, there's three key takeaways from the podcast. And I think the big one, the first one is it came up a few times that awareness is the catalyst for change. If you want to make changes in your life, change is possible, but awareness is the catalyst. You've got to build and you've got to work on being self-aware. It's absolutely critical because without awareness, you're going to have the best values in the world, the best tools and life hacks in the world. But if you're not aware of yourself being emotionally hijacked in the moment, what's the point? So I think awareness is absolutely critical. The second takeaway, I think, which is really, really important, is it only came up a little bit um, in there, but I think it's really, really important is to focus on what you can control. COVID-19, lockdown, social media, these are the things that are outside of our control right now. But as we said, to quote Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response, there is a space between the stimulus and the response. And that's true self-awareness. If you build that self-awareness, you will increase that space and you will focus on what you can control, what is in your control, which is your response to the situation. You can't change other people. You can't change other people's attitudes. You can't change COVID-19 or the political situation. You can change what you do. And there's serious, serious freedom in that. The tour takeaway, um, I had it in my head a minute ago and it's gone completely out of my head. It was it'll based, come back to you. it will come back to me. I think it was based on morning routines. I tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll go with gratitude because I think gratitude is, it's so powerful. It's such a powerful state to be in. Like you can't be angry, jealous or afraid while you're being grateful. It's really powerful. It's grounded in, um, it's grounded in, um, in science as well. And to have ground, like we chat about morning routines as well, to have gratitude as part of your morning routine, you are starting the day off on an amazing foot. And you are biologically, we haven't got time to talk about this, but trust me, I teach the neuroscience in Trinity and UCD. You are actually giving yourself a biological dose of positivity before you even start the day. Win the morning, win the day, prime yourself for the day and get some gratitude and meditation into your life. Even, even a minute or two, like it doesn't have to be much. Baby steps, baby steps. That's the, that's the whole key takeaway of everything baby steps <laughs> yeah and it is that consistency yeah a little bit is better than nothing yeah 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 and if you set the if you set the bar too high you're setting yourself up for failure it's so true like to, to stay motivated make it easy that's how you keep your motivation levels up make it easy and can i ask you then about your your online courses and your book then so tell me a little bit more about your offerings there yeah, cheers, William. So uh, if anyone wants anything, so I do a lot of free videos, a lot of free blogs. Everything is on my website. It's www.brianpenny.com, P-E-N-N-I-E. And I'll be online course. You can buy me book through there as well. The book is called Bonus Time. So I got the name um, from, like, I believe I was given a second chance at life. I'm living on bonus time. So you can get that from the website as well. But the course, I'm doing a lot of courses. I'm doing a lot of courses on relation. I'm doing one on relationships at the moment. I do one on addiction. But me too two seminal courses the first one is master your self-talk and it's around mastering that internal narrative i go through the force modules with the basics of self-talk then i go into the science of self-talk then i talk about awareness and waking up to that self-talk that inner critic and then all the techniques about changing your self-talk and it's heavily grounded in science so that's me that that's 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 the baby that's me baby that's the one i love that's the, the big one that i absolutely love and if you want to know anything about negative thinking self-talk negative beliefs and how to change it that's the, that's the course 
the other course I do, it's it's called How to Create a Powerful Morning Routine. And I go into the Mavic routine, but it's really about creating powerful habits, eliminating procrastination, what motivation really is. Again, it's all grounded in science. I talk about decision-making tools there as well, daily, daily routines as well as morning routines. But the first module of that is all about building a powerful morning routine. I start my book off with the words, I'm the happiest person I know. I shouldn't be, but I am. And I put 90% of that down to the fact that I have a, a consistent morning routine. So that's the other course that I offer there. There are the two main courses on the website. Brian, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for, you know, coming on to the Workplace podcast. It's been really insightful for me. It was an absolute pleasure, William. What a, what a way to end the day after a run now. Very, very happy. I'm, sure I'm going to be chatting about this now. We're not going to have much of a meeting. I'm going to be chatting about this podcast now and all the little tools you're talking about. So thanks so much for having me. Really love it. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.